We have asked for and received an opportunity to talk to Dr. Leonard Steinhorn, a professor at American University. We always He always helps us monitor the goings-on of things in Washington and the presidency and American history and uh, written a couple of books uh, and is just a, a great commentator on all things America these days. So thank you, uh, Dr. Steinhorn. Thanks for calling in. Hey, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Very much appreciated. Uh, let's let's talk about uh, the president is trying to get gasoline prices to go back down. He's, he had some ethanol changes. He had uh, the strategic oil reserves that were being used. He's allowed more leasing of land for drilling. Is this sticking? I wouldn't say that I can detect that the public has any sense that any of these are helping in any way. Look, the gas prices, oil prices, there's only so much we can do in the United States. And even if it cuts the price by 10 or 15 cents, the prices are so high that people barely notice that anyway. You've also had states that are having, let's say, gas tax holidays as well, um, trying to figure that out, uh, lower the price. But the bottom line is that regardless of what we do in this country, we're dealing with a worldwide oil market and oil companies taking advantage of higher prices worldwide, in part because of Russia's uh, uh, invasion of Ukraine and the attempt to sort of stifle and keep Russian oil and gas away from everybody else, which isn't always successful, um, and Saudi Arabia refusing to cooperate and pump more oil. Uh, and so we're really dealing with factors beyond anyone's ability to control it in the United States because you're dealing with a worldwide oil market. So even though we are generally self-sufficient as a country in terms of oil, in terms of uh, you know energy self-sufficiency, um, some of the price uh, hikes are beyond anyone's control in the United States government. And the oil companies, which make rec- record profits, will continue to keep prices high because that's what the worldwide market allows them to do. So unless the president goes in there and tries to put sort of uh, attempts to place some controls on the oil companies and the American energy industry, which is highly unlikely, um, we are stuck with a worldwide rise in prices that's affecting us here at home, regardless of what we try to do. Is all of this the end of the Biden administration's energy policy as we once knew it, this idea of promoting green energies? Is all that going to be on hold? Will that uh, kill that uh, now or forever? Well, the sad irony of all of this is we're talking about this today on Earth Day, um, the first Earth Day 52 years ago in 1970. And we have serious issues with our climate and our environment. We do. We have to address it. And one of the major drivers of those problems is fossil fuels and how much energy we use. Um, So the very fact that the president wants our oil companies uh, to pump more oil and is sort of knows that we depend on fossil fuels and is emphasizing the need to be able to lower prices of fossil fuels right now, it seems to run against the whole notion that we should be lowering our dependence on fossil fuels and increasing our use of sustainable energy and renewable energy. So it's sort of a sad irony here. I don't know if it marks the end of this, because as we know, oil prices can spike 
and then they can also go down. We don't know how long the war in Ukraine will take place. Um, we just don't know all of these factors. And in certain administrations, in certain periods, you've seen oil prices go up and down and up and down. No president can take credit for these things, even if they ever try to, when the oil prices are down. And we really shouldn't blame a particular president when the oil prices are, are very high. Um, but as you say, does it mark the end? I'm not so sure it marks the end, but it does reinforce the notion of how dependent we are on fossil fuels right now. So the next question is, okay, even if we deal with this temporary situation uh, and try and pump more oil on you know, sort of flood the market even more to potentially try and lower prices a little bit. Are we also going to provide the resources and the commitment to invest in and create a greater reliance on renewable and sustainable energy? I think that's the big question. And the president's plan for some of this uh, was undermined way before the war in Ukraine and way before these gas prices began to spike because he wanted to include a lot of that in his Build Back Better plan, but with a margin of basically zero in the United States Senate, uh, and all you need is one senator in the Democratic Party to sort of resist that, um, uh, that money is now not going towards uh, sort, of, uh, sort of climate change issues, and uh, that hasn't been passed. So, uh, yeah, it's a temporary pause, but I do think that this next generation of young people, climate change is a big issue. They're ultimately going to have to vote on this, and they're going to be seeing each day and each year the effects of climate change on their lives. And at a certain point, there's going to be a tipping point where they say, enough, we've got to invest in something and do something to at least forestall some of the worst effects of climate change that are not going to affect you, older generation, but us younger generation for the rest of our lives. I'd like to ask a question. Um, this is John Shipman. I'm co-host this morning. Uh, where, where do you stand on nuclear energy? Well, um, you know, it's interesting. Uh, I think Joe Biden actually uh, is, is saying, hey, maybe we need to give some funds to make sure that some nuclear power plants uh, have a longer life because they don't uh, emit uh, sort of uh, carbon uh, into the atmosphere, um, and uh, they are considered a form of clean energy. And you have a bunch of people in the environmental movement and a bunch of climate scientists who say that that's one answer to be able to address our uh, reliance on fossil fuels right now. Of course, the downside to all of that is safety and security. Um, you know, in Pennsylvania, you have you know, some memories of what happened in uh, 1979 with Three Mile Island. And with the war in Ukraine, we're reminded of uh, Chernobyl uh, as the Russian troops uh, go in there and tinker with the terrible and horrible uh, waste site of that nuclear meltdown. So the question is, how can we be reassured that nuclear plants are going to be safer than ever? They cost a lot of money to build. They take a long time to build. Uh, and we always have that uncertainty about uh, uh, their safety, as well as uncertainty about where to store some of the nuclear waste. Uh, most states in this country don't want that nuclear waste stored in their state near any of their citizens. 
So there are a lot of questions to uh, ask and answer about nuclear energy, though there are lots of people who say this is clearly an alternative that we have to think about and consider, invest in, and make sure there are safeguards so that we do have more sort of safe energy, or I'm sorry, clean energy, um, uh, to be able to rely on in the future. Three Mile Island was 60s technology, uh, as you point out, was built uh, built uh, in, uh, in the 70s. Um, uh, technology certainly has come a long way uh, since 19, the 1960s. Uh, I drove, I got my driver's license in 1960, and in those days, uh, cars had absolutely no kind of emissions control, no smog control. Um, you had a vent cap on the on the uh, uh, the top of the engine and a vent pipe on the bottom of the engine and all that interior energy uh, uh, pollution just came out the pipe and the bottom and so forth. Uh, cars today uh, ha- are, are remarkably uh, efficient. Because of things like fuel injection and and all of the the uh, uh, latest technology that that makes them burn gasoline more more efficiently and so forth, certainly nuclear energy has come a long way since 1960. Yeah, no question, I and mean, that's a good point. But cars still break down, and we still have recalls on lots of cars that happen, uh, notwithstanding the best of technologies, and we have some of the most amazing digital technologies in the world, yet we still have hackers who can get in there and cause all sorts of problems. And nuclear power plants, as well as all power plants right now, uh, depend on digital technology. And we've seen instances of hackers doing things and creating problems. Uh, So as the technology gets better, as you say, and it gets safer, as you say, and no question nuclear power plants are better and safer, um, uh, it also gets more complicated. It leaves it open for the potential of hackers to cause all sorts of mischief. And we've seen what the Russians are willing to do worldwide in terms of hacking and and, and the Chinese and even the Iranians. Um, And so uh, you're right. The technology is better, but we have to make sure that it's you know completely fail safe because the consequences of something happening bad at a nuclear power plant are so much greater than ever before. So uh, you're right. The technology is much better, um, and we, but we just have to make sure that it's 100% safe for the people around it. So it's sort of uh, as the technology gets better, so does the potential for mischief. Um, but even when technology does get better, sometimes it doesn't work as planned. So that's the dilemma we face on this. But again, we've had nuclear power plants functioning for many, many, many years and have had very rare instances of them failing. And if they do fail, we have safeguards in place that catch it very quickly. So with the new technology, you have to hope that those safeguards are even better and we catch it even more quickly. And something that does create a problem is caught very early before anything bad happens. Um, But we have to be sure about that because the stakes of any sort of failure are very, very high. Moving on to the student loan crisis. Let's talk about that. Uh, The Biden administration really backed into a corner. Very difficult for anybody to navigate this. Uh, The Education Department said there's going to be a limited amount of uh, student loan forgiveness that they're considering. Uh, Sort of explain President Biden's uh, quandary here. 
Well, look, we have record student loan debt right now. I, I think the number is over $1.7 trillion. Um, it's enormous. Uh, I see it with my own students as they sort of factor in the sheer amount of debt that they have in terms of what they want to do with their lives and uh, how much money they can potentially make. Um, I actually asked a question in class yesterday talking about ethics. Um, would you take a job in an organization that you that really meant a lot to you for twenty twenty five thousand dollars less than a job in an organization or a company that does things that you don't particularly like? And in years past, it was almost always the job uh, with the lower pay uh, at the organization uh, that they really liked. Nowadays, it's split. And when I then put in the question and add to it the prompt, uh, what about student loans? If you have those more students will say that they'll take the job that they don't really like or that sort of does things that they don't really like to the country or the environment. So it does become a factor in people's individual lives in terms of how we, uh, we've uh, increased the amount of debt people have. And then we add in the sort of notion that higher education and the skills you acquire and the critical thinking you gain are so essential for the type of knowledge economy that we're in. So we're basically asking young people and families that don't have means, first-generation students and others, to subsidize the economy through their own personal payments um, because of higher education and what they learn there is essential for a good functioning modern economy that continues to place the United States ahead of most other countries in terms of innovation and technology uh, and and uh, sort of insight into how we get things done. Uh, so yes, this is part of what President Biden is facing in the conversations that he's having inside the White House. Now they have extended a student loan moratorium until August 31st. Um, they're also sort of thinking and kicking around. Do they just forgive $10,000 in student loans to everybody? Uh, do they do an, a sort of income-based forgiveness of student loans? You already have some income forgiveness of student loans that the Biden administration has been trying to expand. There's also a public service forgiveness of student loans that the Biden administration is, is trying to expand. The thing is, the Biden administration and the president, they're not sure they have the legal authority to forgive all of these student loans, whether it's $10,000 of student loans or $50,000 of student loans for all people or even income adjusted. Um, and so what they would like is for Congress to be able to approve something like that. But there seems to be no interest right now or no ability or no consensus in Congress on whether to do that or how to do it. So the question then becomes, does President Biden move ahead unilaterally with an executive order to do something like that? And that's what they are thinking about right now in the White House. Uh, but there's a sort of moratorium till August 31st. They bought some, themselves some time. There's also a political element to it, which is that, um, uh, and there's both sides on this. Uh, they know that if they want to motivate a lot of young people to go out and vote, in the midterm elections and the presidential elections two years from now, um, student loan forgiveness is one big thing that might motivate a lot of people who will say, hey, you're doing a lot for us. But there's other people out there who say, hey, I've already paid my student loans back. Why should you be getting forgiveness? 
Well, I think that uh, one of the things uh, that has contributed to the student loan crisis is government policy. Uh, the more the government seems to tinker with this, uh, the worse the problem seems to become. And uh, I grew up in an era when there wasn't any student loans. Uh, you uh, worked and went to school or your parents could afford to pay it. Um, I, it, I think that there's a need uh, to help some students. Um, I think that across the board, however, rewards middle and upper income people who can really afford to pay their own. And, <clears throat> uh, and I think that that's probably something that should be off the table. I, I think that helping people who, who are unable to pay and so forth, as you pointed out, there is some remedy for that at this point. Uh, I think we all feel that those people need some help. But uh, I don't think that we should be subsidizing middle and upper income people uh, who chose to finance through student loans. Um, I was able to, my daughters went to college in the, in the uh, uh, 80s and 90s. And uh, college tuition was still fairly affordable, and I was uh, fortunate enough to be able to pay for my three daughters' education as they went. Today, uh, the cost of a college education is probably triple what it was uh, back in the 1980s uh, and early 1990s. So part of the problem is that the cost of college education has skyrocketed way, way, way beyond the inflation rate, and that's because uh, the government has uh, subsidized. Uh, all of these things. And so if you can borrow the money, uh, the colleges are free to increase the rates. Well, I think it's not just government subsidies. I mean, being at a college and university, um, you know, we have enormous technological needs um, to be able to uh, use in our classrooms and to be able to digitize records. Um, and there's enormous need for scientific uh, and medical research, which adds to the cost of, um, of any college or university. Um, and one of the reasons why they get government support is to support that type of research. Plus, for good or for ill, whether you agree or not, I mean, I went to college in a time where there are fewer offices and administrators and all the rest. There's a lot more of them around, and so some of that money goes to support that. But that also goes to helping veterans. There are programs for veterans on college campuses. There are programs for international students on college campuses. So the sort of the sort of quality of life has increased at college campuses to to require a lot more money to be able to support the systems uh, that exist on most college campuses. Now we can talk about, and I am certainly sympathetic to the notion of reducing administrative costs and cutting out a lot of offices, because the real importance of a college education is what goes on in the classroom, which is what you had when you were in college, and for the most part, what I had when I was in college. Um, but the cost of running a college is very, very, very extensive um, for a lot of different reasons. Um, but l there's another factor here, which is this. Um, Let's say you live in New York and you have an upper middle class income of $80,000 a year. That doesn't buy you much in New York as it would, let's say, in a small town in Kansas, okay? So the people in a small town in Kansas have a lot more money in hand simply because of where they live to pay for their kids' education versus the people in New York for whom an $80,000 a year income, which if you average it nationally, sounds really good, but not necessarily if you're living in Brooklyn or Manhattan or even Queens, New York. 
So part of it is that you have a lot of people at sort of different income levels in different parts of the country that have a lot uh, a higher cost of living uh, uh, issues that they have to pay for, housing issues and other issues that they have to deal with um, that are squeezing them. So they may sound like they're upper middle class and should be able to afford the $70,000 a year full payment, which is basically what it is uh, for, for uh, people to go to college. But in many parts of the country, the cost of living is so high that those families really need the support and help. Um, and so what we've done as a policy in this country for years is to depend on individual loans rather than grants that recognize that college is an essential part of our nation's economy in terms of how it runs and the types of knowledge and skills that it produces uh, in our workers. So we've made those decisions over the years to invest in a certain type of payment for college that falls on individual families versus something that falls on our collective shoulders because higher education does benefit us collectively as a nation. There's a reason why I have students from every single country around the world, even China, coming to, into my classes to be able to study in the United States because we have the best colleges and universities in the world and, and the, the best form of higher education, and that's why they all want to come here, and it ultimately does benefit our country in so many ways. Well, thank you so much for your, your remarks. Anything to add that you'd like to add that uh, would uh, elaborate or we didn't ask you that relates to these topics as it relates to sort of the sticky issues that are hurting the Biden administration at this time? Well, look, I've been thinking a lot about this, and I'm beginning to compare today's uh, situation with the post-Vietnam War years, where I think our country uh, was in sort of a form of depression. Remember when Jimmy Carter uh, called it a crisis of confidence? He never used the word malaise. Um, he called it a crisis of confidence. I don't know if we're in a crisis of confidence the same way right now, but, you know, we've been hit with one of the you know, most unusual and uh, difficult moments in our history in these past two years, a pandemic that has killed just about a million Americans, perhaps even more, depending on how you count it. That's a lot of us. That's about 3% of all Americans have died from this pandemic. And then you've had school children sort of in masks or not being able to go to school or college students in masks and not being able to go to school and families that are upended and particularly women who have seen their careers uh, sort of with marbles thrown on the floor in front of them because they've had to navigate issues like childcare during a pandemic. And so, you know, this is uh, something that no individual president can control. They can only do the best they can, and there, no president in any crisis is going to run or function anything like this perfectly. We're not a machine. We make decisions. Some decisions are right, and some aren't. So I think sort of President Biden's troubles really reflect a lot more on the state of our nation versus the state of his presidency. There is an article out, I believe it was the New York Times, about the COVID relief plan and the, what, I don't know, 1.7 or whatever it is, trillion dollars that uh, that was approved early on in the administration. And when you ask people about all the money that they were able to get and, and put in their bank accounts as savings and all the benefits from that, very, very few actually sort of uh, recognize that it was the Biden administration that moved that through, or you have that infrastructure bill. Very few people see the results of that right now or even think about that as a major accomplishment. So here's somebody who, in uh, you know, first 
sort of year and a quarter has done some major things, but also raised expectations and not delivered on some of those, which is part of the problem. But does that merit such low uh, favorability scores? I'm not so sure, uh, but at the same time, I think a lot of it has to do with sort of the feeling in our country right now, uh, this sort of depression that we're in after coping with this once-in-a-century horrible and murderous pandemic that we're living through. Well, thank you so much for your analysis and your information. Very, very much appreciated. We'd love to check in with you, and uh, we'll talk again. So thank you, Professor Steinhorn. Thank you. Uh, nice talking hey. to you, Professor. Yeah, same here, and those are great questions you ask, and I really appreciate it. Mm, thank you. Uh, Dr. Leonard Steinhorn, an author, CBS News political analyst, professor of communications, and affiliate professor of history at American University, wrote the controversial book, The Greater Generation, in defense of the baby boom legacy in 2006. Mm. So... <laughs> my my father's turning his hand, thumbs down right now. <laughs> but in, in in that book, I, I only got through the first couple chapters before I had to stop. But uh, he does say that the reason the baby boomers uh, may be considered the greatest generation is because the greatest generation just would not let them malaise or underperform. That they got pushed, pushed, pushed. You know, from grade school on up, uh, the greatest generation invented helicoptering. All right, we got to take a quickie break. We're going to do so momentarily. We thank you for standing by. We're going to take a break. We'll have CBS News and then we'll be back on News Radio 1070 WK. Okay, Sunbury.